community. Uh, I have been excited ever since I got the invitation from Pastor Brent uh, to be able to be a part of, of this. And uh, it, it's just going to, it's already been a great day. We've, we've already been reminded of the Lord's favor and his love and his mercy. And, and I'm just going to pray that that would continue as we continue to go. Uh, two kind of upfronty things that I want to talk about before we really get into the, the scripture passage today. First is I just want you to know I love your senior pastor. Pastor Brent and I, we have had a chance to serve on a regional board together over the last, I think, three and a half-ish years. And so about two, three times a year, we will gather, usually in Indiana or somewhere in Michigan, we'll gather together as a, a group, and him and I are part of that, and we get to hang out and talk. And I, I love hearing that guy pray, and I love hearing that guy talk about you. It is clear that he loves you, he loves this church, he loves this community. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask, and I'm not going to come back and check in on if you do this or not, but I would love to encourage you to do two things. One, be praying for him as he's away. I, I understand he's coming back very soon. Um, he'll be back next weekend, I think. Is that right? Um, so, but, but be praying for him while he's away. Pray for the Lord to strengthen him, protect him, to anoint him, to recharge his batteries. The second thing I would, and, and again, this is not, I'm not going to check on this, but I would love to encourage you, if you would be willing to take a moment and just write out a, a situation or a word where, where Pastor Brent has had influence in your life. I, pastors need to hear that. Uh, it, is, it is so important that, that we are feedbacking uh, with, with him on the influence that he's made in our life. And so I would just encourage you, write a card, even if it's a, your connection card, to write a quick whatever. I would love for him to come back and have like 20 or 30 notes just randomly from, uh, from the church family. So uh, again, that's just more of a challenge for me to you. Um, and I would, I just, it would be awesome uh, to see that happen. Uh, then also, because I, this is the first time I've been with you, uh, I don't want it to be, even though it is, uh, a random stranger that is talking with you. I wanted to just give a couple of extra notes of context around my story. You may have picked up, I am a nerd, okay? So I am very, very proud of that part of my life and, and the interest and stuff that I have. But I have been in ministry 23 years. I, I currently serve in the Quad Cities, which is about two and a half hours southwest of here. Um, that was where I grew up, and so it's awesome to be able to serve at the church um, that was my home church growing up as a kid. Um, my wife, Melissa, is with me today, and I've heard it said that you, uh, you can marry a halfer or you can marry a doubler, and uh, I married a doubler. Melissa makes me better in every way, and, uh, and in fact, tomorrow is our 24th wedding anniversary, so we're excited to be uh, celebrating that. That is tomorrow. Melissa is a special education teacher. She teaches currently sophomore English uh, at our local high school. And, uh, and I, I tell people, I love her, but I like her. Like, it's both of those things. Like, I can hang with her, um, and, and I'm totally committed to her, and she's just an awesome woman of God. Uh, then also, you'll notice on the, kind of the picture there, I have a daughter. She's 20 years old. She's starting her junior year of college. She is also studying to be a special education teacher, which would be the third generation of SPED teachers that we have in our family, which is kind of cool. So she's just the sweetest person that I've ever met. Uh, I'm biased, but, but she's awesome. And then my son, Aaron, um, whom literally we had to pay to smile in that picture. I mean, that's not even overstating it. His grandma paid him 50 bucks if he would smile in five pictures on our vacation. That was one. 
one of the five. I should have brought an example of when he doesn't because it's terrible. Um, and then I would not tell this story on him if he were here, or I would not tell it in a context where he's known, but um, he just turned 16. He still does not have his driver's license because the very first time that him and I went out driving with his permit, uh, he did really well. He went from the church all the way to our house, pulled into our driveway, mixed the brake and the gas, and rammed into the corner of our garage. And he, he's only driven like once since. So we're trying to work with him on that. If, if I get an invitation back in a couple of years, I'll finish that story for you. Um, maybe he'll be driving by then. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, so that's, that's a little bit of us. That's the Howard family. And, uh, and we just want you to know a little bit about who we are and uh, so excited to be here today. Now, I, I, we are in the middle of a series called Backstory. And as soon as I heard the title of this particular series, I was really uh, excited to, to lean into this because I love a good origin story or a good backstory. I, I love it when a writer or a filmmaker will, will, will give us a certain story and then will maybe through flashbacks or, or through other ways of, of storytelling will let us know a little bit more about what's going on. What's beautiful about this is that when we read and study the scriptures, it is such a layered experience. There are so many threads that can be pulled. There are so many things that can be discovered. Uh, in so many ways where, where the Old Testament, what we see in the Old Testament, informs what we're going to see and what we're going to experience in the New Testament. There are so many ways that when you read the New Testament, it can help shape uh, and, and even reshape interpretation of the Old Testament. The Bible is such a beautiful book. And so today, what I want to do is I want to invite you into a story that, that features Jesus. It's one of my favorite stories in all the scriptures. And in fact, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. This particular story is the story where four friends bring a, a paralyzed guy, drop him through the roof, and lay him at the feet of Jesus. And, and what we're going to do is I'm going to read the entirety of the story over us right up front. I don't always do it this way, but I want to put the, the story out there on a table for you. And I want to invite you to use all of your senses. Use your holy imagination and allow yourself to just get your, just put yourself in the story. Imagine the different perspectives, the different people in the story. There's so many different things that we're going to be able to tease out of the story and see what the Lord has for us. So here it is. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let it minister to you as you hear it. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon, the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head, and then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? 
Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned outlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. I, I love this story. One of my favorite stories in all the scripture, it has a little bit of everything in it. There's, there's drama, there's su- surprise twists, which we'll unpack in a minute. There's, there's conflict, there's compassion, there's innovation on, on, in, in the case of the friends and how they got their friend to Jesus. There's layered conversation, there's questioning, and of course there's theology, which hopefully we'll get to today. But, but let's, let's begin to tug at the various threads of this story. Let's begin to use that holy imagination and deliberately work through the passage today and, and see what the Lord has for us as we engage the scriptures. So here's a guy who's paralyzed, right? He needs to get to Jesus, but he can't because he's immobile. He cannot do this on his own. Thankfully, he has four loyal, committed, diligent, innovative, hardworking friends who pick up four corners of his mat and carry him to Jesus' location. That alone, just that act alone, speaks of amazing friendship. But the story just keeps getting better, right? Or more bizarre, depending on how you look at the story. This four-man ambulance arrives, but they arrive to a chaotic scene. There is no room in the house. The crowds are massive. They're all pressing in and leaning into Jesus all the way out the door. There is no room, no way into the house, no way to Jesus. It's just this mass of people. I mean, there is no social distancing that's happening in this particular moment. But failure is not an option for these guys. They were going to get into the house one way or another. It was going to happen. And so they, they they chose a rather unorthodox way if you kind of think about it, it's sort of a destructive way of getting them, getting their friend to Jesus. They somehow get him up on the roof. I'm not entirely sure how. And then they rip a gaping hole through the roof of this house and carefully lower their friend to Jesus. Now, let's, let's just kind of time out of the story for a minute. And, and let's just be honest. You, I'm going to have you raise your hand. I want you to be completely honest. But have you ever been mad at someone who has cut you off in traffic before? Raise your hand. And some of you are not raising your hand and you're lying in church. But how, 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 have any of you been mad at maybe somebody, maybe a different scenario? Uh, maybe somebody cut in line at a theme park or cut in line for a, a line for a sale at a, a store or something like that. And, and our, I feel like our first instinct is to get a little bit annoyed or a little bit mad about that. And, and if you raised your hand, the odds are pretty good that if you were in this story, and if you were in that house, and if you were sitting down, you were expecting to receive something from Jesus, and all of a sudden the roof caves in, that you might be a little bit annoyed, that you might be a little bit mad. I mean, all of a sudden, having your time with Jesus interrupted, maybe you were there with a healing concern. Maybe you had a question that you wanted answered. And all of a sudden, you see this this thing play out in front of you that completely changes the dynamic 
of what you were about to experience. And, and, and here, are these, here are these guys who, who are kind of circumventing the time. And even more so, uh, think about how mad you would be if you were the owner of that house, right? And then now you're going to have to patch a hole in your roof, and you're going to have to do it before a storm comes through. And, and I think I would be tempted to, to hunt down those four guys after this and ask them to, like, help with flood mitigation or whatever. Like, this is a big deal. Now, what's interesting is, as I was reading some biblical scholar kind of stuff around this passage, that one, one or two of the scholars hypothesized that this actually may have been a house that belonged in Jesus's family, that this, this was probably home base for him in Capernaum, and, and that if that's the case, if this is a house that he's closely attached to and he's closely connected with, then it makes his response to this entire situation even more striking to me. Because notice, Jesus does not get mad at these guys. Jesus does not ask these guys to go to the back of the line, so to speak. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't just keep on teaching. In fact, it seems like this creative approach actually gets his attention and respect. It seems like he really, he really wants to honor the innovation that he sees here, that he affirms what they're doing. He, he affirms the heart behind what they're doing. And if our first surprise twist of the story happens in verse 4, when the roof literally caves in, then I would argue that the biggest surprise twist of the entire story happens in verse 5, where we get this statement. When Jesus saw their faith, he looked at the paralytic, and what does he say? Does he say, you're healed first? No. He doesn't, in fact. And, and friends, that is shocking. Every single person in that room, after seeing the plight of the paralytic being lowered down in front of Jesus, would have guessed that that dude's biggest need was physical healing. Those four friends who are looking over, looking over from the roof, seeing their friend in front of Jesus, they, they went specifically to that event because they thought, that their friend's biggest need was physical healing. Most people who read the story for the first time would guess that this guy's biggest need was physical healing, which brings us to something that we need to understand about Jesus, something that we need to even trust about Jesus, and that is to say that Jesus knows your deepest need long before you know your deepest need. And, and this is where trust comes into play. Because sometimes Jesus starts to work on your deepest need before you know it's a need. And sometimes it can be really frustrating because we've already approached him with what we think is our biggest need. We approach him with a prayer list of, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And when he goes to work on something completely different, it can feel a little bit insensitive. It can, it can feel like he's not really hearing us or not understanding us, not aware of the situation that we happen to be walking in. So in verse 5, when Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven, I wonder how that four-man ambulance must have thought about that. Maybe they felt a little bit of disappointment. Uh, Jesus, we came here to do something different for this guy. I wonder how the paralytic felt. Maybe, maybe in that split second, there was confusion and dismay and, and hopes dashed and, and expectations that are unmet. In fact, I think this is one of the big themes that Jesus 
really leans into over and over again in his earthly ministry. So often, people would approach him and follow him solely to be a recipient of a physical miracle, right? Maybe a healing or a deliverance or a miraculous food pantry or a miraculous wine tasting. These were all things that people would press in in order to get from him. And then there were others who were looking to Jesus to change the political uh, culture and climate uh, of that day. They, they were interested in the question of when will Jesus free us from the grip of Rome? Or when will Jesus lead Israel back to the, the way that it should look? Those were real needs, often perceived by the people around Jesus to be the deepest needs. And what we learn about Jesus is that he came to deal with the deepest human need. He came to deal with our sin. So when he pronounces, my child, your sins are forgiven, he is actually pronouncing the singular most loving thing that he could pronounce in that moment. He is dealing with the deepest need in the life of the paralytic, but the irony of this moment is that it all could have been lost under the weight of unmet expectations. Have you been there, right? Have you been in a spot where you approach God with this list of what you expect him to do and he answers in a different way? I'm not gonna have you raise your hand on that one. That's a deeper soul kind of question, but I will. I've been there. I, I have lived that in seasons of my life. In fact, my wife and I, as we, we talk about this last year of ministry, uh, the, the church that I'm involved in right now is in a senior pastor transition, and it's been a really difficult year. In fact, I would say for, for us as a family, it's been the single most difficult ministry year that we've experienced. And there's been a lot of that unmet expectations. There, there's a, we had a picture of what we wanted this year to look like going in, and it has looked nothing like that. And there's been times where I've called out to God and asked, where, where are, are you even listening to what I need? And, and that's where you have to trust. That's where trust comes into the equation. To be able to say to Jesus, I trust that you know what's best for me. I trust that this journey I'm walking on, that there's not a single drop of, of whatever it is that I'm feeling or experiencing that will be wasted by you. That, that I trust that you will heal me holistically, that you will, you will lead me. I trust you in this. And then we have the really difficult task of handing over our unmet expectations before him. But then we get to verse 6. And this is really interesting to me because this is where conflict begins to enter the story. And we discover, actually, that the real pushback here doesn't happen from the friends. It doesn't happen from the paralytic. The real pushback comes from, of course, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders. And when they hear Jesus say, my child, your sins are forgiven, you can just imagine that they just start to get you know, the, the stress internally, their internal responses, only God can forgive sins. And they, they blame Jesus for sacrilege, for blasphemy. And then we get to verses 9 and 10. And it's one of those classic Jesus moments. Very often, throughout the Gospels, Jesus was called, uh, you know, he, he, his identity was questioned, or, or maybe something that he was teaching, or decision-making, or who he kept company with, or how he kept the Sabbath. On and on it went. There, there was all kinds of things that he was, 
he was questioned on. And in response, he would often turn the tables on his opponent, and he would ask a piercing, smartly asked question. And typically, those sorts of questions would not get an answer because they were so brilliant. And Jesus was just brilliant at disarming his opponents. And that's what we see here, right? He, he asks, is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? I mean, it's, it's a great question because at the end of the day, these are both tied into divine actions. The ability to forgive, the ability to miraculously heal. I mean, man, which one of those is easier? I mean, to me, those are both big deals. And if Jesus can do one, it seems likely that he can do the other. And it points us to him being fully divine, fully human, son of man. And just so there's no confusion as to what Jesus is getting at here, he actually says this. He says, so I will prove to you that I am the son of man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. And when he says to the paralytic, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And, and then we see it, that the man does just that. And he walks out through, these, through, through this crowd, stunned crowd. I mean, this is amazing. And it demonstrates Jesus' power and authority to forgive sins. And at the same time, demonstrates his power over sickness and disease. Now, I want to stop here because I gave you a truth statement earlier about Jesus knowing our deepest needs before we do, but let me, let me kind of give a, a, a secondary statement to this. And let me say this, that, that we see in this passage that Jesus has the power and authority to meet your deepest needs. Not only does he know them, but he has the power and authority to meet them. And I would even add here that Jesus can meet our needs holistically, that there is a, there is a body, mind, and spirit element to this passage that, that we should not miss. And we see it, that the body part of it, this man can walk. I mean, we get that. We get the spirit element, this man's forgiven. We get that. But there is kind of a small blink and you'll miss it moment in this passage that indicates Jesus has miraculous power and authority in the realm of engaging our mind. So look with me again at, at verse 6. The teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, and then they went on with their critique. And then in verse 8, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Now this is fascinating. I never saw this before until I really started to dig into this. But the pushback that Jesus gets here in this passage was not actually stated audibly. It was not actually said out loud in this moment. You look again and you'll see the religious leaders thought their criticism. Jesus miraculously discerned the thinking, discerned what was going on in the room, and, and then responded the way that he needed to respond. That, that Jesus was miraculously able to discern the motives and the heart condition, the mind condition of the people he was around. And we saw, we saw it earlier, too. When, when these four guys bring their friend down uh, and, and place their friend before Jesus, Jesus was immediately able to discern. What it says, he saw their faith. He was able to immediately discern their motive, the compassion, and the love, and he responded appropriately. Now, I don't know if this is comforting to you or if this is terrifying to you. Maybe a little bit of both. But Jesus knows you. 
Friend, Jesus knows you. By his power and authority, he knows you. He sees you. He knows how you think. He understands your motives. He, he knows maybe the lies that you've bought into about yourself or maybe about another person. He, he knows all of what's going on in your head. He knows you. This isn't some creepy Santa Claus thing. He sees you when you're, no, this is the living God who knit you together, who handcrafted you. You are artisan made. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows how you think. He knows that all of those thoughts can lead to constructive or destructive things. We see both in this passage. And he wants to engage your thoughts in a way that is both transformative and meaningful. See, the beauty of this passage is that we can discern, we can learn that Jesus interacts with us as a whole person. He sees you as a whole. He doesn't want you to compartmentalize. He doesn't want you to separate certain things from him. He wants you to bring your whole self before him, and he has the power and authority to bring healing in all of those areas of your life, body, mind, and spirit. He has the power and authority to meet the deepest needs in your life. Now, as we get ready to begin to wrap up our time together, I really want to start to set it up from a question, like a reflection question point of view. In fact, there's, there's two reflection questions I want you to consider. And, and really to get to those reflection questions, I want to invite you to consider where you fit. Where do you personally fit in the story? For instance, maybe some of you might identify with the crowd in the house. I'm not saying you do, but maybe some of you do. And maybe you're like, Jesus, Jesus is doing things for other people that he's not doing for me. Or Jesus is interrupting to work on behalf of somebody else when I need something. Maybe you're annoyed at the timing of what Jesus is doing. I, I'm not saying that you are, but may, that, that could be a scenario. Or maybe you might identify with the religious leaders. Maybe you're just angry at, at the way that Jesus goes about his work. But my guess is, that the majority of us in this room would really hone in on one of two narratives, one of two perspectives. My guess is that you'll find yourself drawn either to the paralytic or you'll find yourself drawn to the four friends that are watching from the roof. So I want to take those one at a time because I think that there's some of you in this room who desperately need healing. Maybe Maybe it's a physical healing, I don't know. Maybe it's an emotional healing. Maybe, maybe there's mental illness that you've been battling. Maybe there's something that you just need a touch from Jesus. Maybe it's even unknown to you what exactly you need from him right now. And maybe you're approaching Jesus, maybe with the help of your friends. Maybe some, some of you, maybe somebody was drugged in here today by your friends. I don't know. But you're, you're discovering that what you thought you needed most is not actually your greatest need. And if you resonate with this perspective, then here's the question I would encourage you to ask quietly, to sit with in your time with Jesus. What are the areas of your life that you need to surrender to the power and authority of Jesus? Where do you need to be made whole? Where do you need a healing touch? And, and probably the big question in all of this is will you trust him even if he decides that you need something different than you first approached him with? Friends, uh, Jesus models a humble way. That means that he's not going to bully his way into your life. 
It means that he's not going to throw his weight around. He's not going to push in uninvited. And so part of our journey with Jesus is identifying those places where we invite him in and give him control, to give him, to give him what he needs in order to bring his healing touch, to trust that he knows best, to, to allow him to breathe new life into you, to bring the fullness out of who you were always meant to be. Where in your life do you need a miraculous touch from Jesus? Remembering that he knows our deepest need and that he not only wants to meet it, but he has the power and authority to do so. But then there's one final perspective that I want to encourage us to reflect upon. And this might be my favorite part of the story, honestly. This is probably my favorite perspective of the story. And I want us to consider the perspective of the four friends who carried their buddy to Jesus. Now, make no mistake, Jesus is the hero of the story, okay? Flat out, he is the hero of the story. But the actions of these four guys who walked who knows how long, holding their friends, throwing them up on the roof, don't know how that works, tearing a hole in the ceiling, these friends need to be commended. And their actions should actually prompt us to consider the question, who are we carrying to Jesus? Who are you taking to the foot of Jesus for healing? See, one of the most fascinating parts of the story is how the scriptures articulate what happens at the exact moment when the paralytic is dropped at the feet of Jesus. In verse 5, it's something that I didn't see this for years, but it says, when Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. Not, not his faith, not, not the faith of the paralytic sitting on the floor. No, no. When Jesus saw their faith, the four-man ambulance on the roof, then he said to the paralytic, child, your sins are forgiven. I mean, the word there is so intriguing to me. I mean, and I'm sure there's other ways that we can unpack this. There's other ways to go. But, but for us just to simply see, Jesus saw their faith. All three gospel writers who cover the story say it the same way. When Jesus saw their faith, he took action. And it's amazing to me that we see the power of community. We see the power of friendship. We see the power of sacrifice. I mean, these guys didn't even know it yet, but they were choosing to live in the way of the cross, displaying sacrificial compassion and carrying their friend to Jesus. See, I think that that's what happens when we put ourselves under the authority of Jesus. It's actually an invitation into the way of the cross. It's an invitation to live poured out, others-focused, sacrificial lives. It's an invitation to live with compassion. I mean, here are four guys who carried their friend, we don't know how far, and, and, and did all of this stuff, and there really seemed to be no personal benefit for them, no direct personal benefit for them in the situation. All of the benefits of this situation go to the one person laying on the ground. None of the direct benefit goes to the four men that Jesus said had the faith. But I imagine that that didn't matter at all to them because they were walking in the way of the cross. Sacrificial compassion, where they found satisfaction in the healing and wholeness of their friend. His success was their success. They made his problem their problem. That's very, very Jesus-like. That's very cross-like. Setting aside 
our own comfort so that others can experience the love and healing of Jesus. So I ask again, who are you carrying to Jesus? Who needs your faith to help kickstart their own? Who needs your compassion that they might see Jesus for the very first time? Who are we carrying to Jesus? I encourage us to prayerfully consider this story that is in front of us. It's a beautiful story. And there's so many different little threads that you can pull at. But just to remember that God knows your deepest need. He can meet your deepest need. But don't forget that God knows the deepest need of your family member, of your coworker, of your neighbor. He wants to meet their needs as well. So praise be to God that we can find healing and wholeness and forgiveness through Jesus. And praise be to God that he actually allows us for some reason, he allows us to join in his redemptive purposes in this world. So let's trust that he wants to do something in us and let's trust that he wants to do something through us and that we might live in the way of the cross and help carry people to the feet of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I thank you so much for your great love and your mercy. And I thank you for the scriptures. You know, this, this series, this teaching series is all about looking at passages in a different light. There is so much to be gleaned and so much to learn. And I pray, Lord, that as we, even further on past this week, as this beautiful body of believers engages with the text, that you would illuminate these words in their heart and that they would see things about you that they've never seen before or, or see things about themselves that they've not seen before so that we can live in, in a, a way where we abide closely with you, but we live in a way, an unselfish, a sacrificial way of helping bring people into, into your presence, into your healing. So I pray that you would empower us, that you would embolden us, that you would give us what we need day by day to live faithfully. We love you, Jesus, but we are so desperately thankful that you loved us first. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.